Hello, welcome to a, another episode of uh, Journey Through Sport. Um, Happy New Year, and I hope everyone had a great Christmas to all our listeners. And we are back with a bang with a very special guest. I'm going to get him to introduce himself in a moment. But our special guest for this episode is Gary Faber. How you doing, mate? Hello, mate. I'm all good. Uh, thanks, for, thanks for having me, and Happy New Year to you guys. Oh, thank you. Um, how was your New Year? Uh, it was nice. Yeah, very nice. A little bit COVID interrupted um, with, I've got two children. Uh, they unfortunately picked it up. They were due to come round. So we just had a very quiet one, um, slightly awkward plans, but that's that's becoming a norm at the moment. So it's it's not too stressful, really. I think a quiet life's a good life. Yeah, I agree with that. I think, yeah, my sister caught COVID over the week, over Christmas, so we couldn't see her. Um, but I agree with that one, yeah. Quiet life is a good life. That's it. I certainly think we've had a, a better Christmas, this one just gone, than the previous one. So I think steps forward seem to be getting made, don't they? We'll, we'll take every step we can. Yeah. Um, so what else have you been up to? Uh, well, more recently, um, I think you might have seen through sort of social media, um, I've accepted a new role, um, sort of a national team role, which is which is really great professionally. Um and then just sort of ticking along, getting back to sort of business. Um, I work, you know, privately for myself with a business partner. So that's um, that's obviously had its challenges. And then and on a personal level, just, I guess, maybe like a few of us, not eating too, uh, too much cheese and chocolate and drinking too much wine and beer over Christmas. So, again, I'm sort of resonating um, from what I, you know, said just now trying to keep life as quiet and simple and basic as possible i find that sort of the last two years and covid has just given us an opportunity to actually sort of step out of ourselves and and take a bit of stock and reflection really yeah no i agree but i definitely need to cut down on the beer oh no it's uh it's a difficult one sometimes though isn't it since um well since lockdown like ended in the summer i think because i go keep out quite a lot oh and... yeah of course yeah to be a bit of a session every weekend, which I really need to. Trouble is, live football and a, and a cold beer go hand in hand. They go quite nicely as a good combination. Yeah, not if you go keep it you're drinking warm Carlsberg. It's, it's, uh... <laughs> you're not drinking to drown your sorrows too much, I hope. Um, no, not, not this year, definitely, no. No, doing okay. Yeah, doing doing right. well. It's been quite enjoyable. No, excellent. Um... And obviously you're West Ham now, aren't you? Is that if I, if I remember correctly? Yeah, I am. Yeah, good memory actually. Yeah. Um. Obviously, we're having a great season, so again, not going to complain. Even when we've even when we've hit what people are calling a little bit of a sticky patch in terms of results, um, I think we're still a much much better side. I think Moyes has kind of really turned it around in the last couple of years, and and I'm glad they've backed him to be honest, because I think. Within sport, managers come and go quite quickly, but he's been given a bit of time to actually sort of build from the bottom up, so it seems. Yeah, same with um, QPR, with Mark Walburn, they've given him time. I think a lot of clubs should do that. Yeah, no, I agree. I think otherwise, the hiring and firing culture, it, it just doesn't create any stability and it creates a lot of uncertainty. Um, I mean, I, I actually had the sort of pleasure of meeting David Moyes once through one of my roles, and uh, he came across a really nice man. Um, very very different to what you kind of see on TV and and sort of pitch side and he just speaks really well so I can see why they've hired him and I can see why he's probably been very successful um, at sort of periods of his career as well yeah Um, 
So how? So does like meeting like David Moyes does that like inspire you, or does um, it? Do you take stuff off people like? Not what when I say inspire you. I mean, do you like take little bits off of him, of the people you meet? Think, oh, I could use that. Maybe not in terms of the practice, but maybe in terms of the way they hold themselves. Do you do you know what I think? I've always had like um, a sort of underlying respect for anyone I meet in life. So yeah, I mean, taking your sort of question there. I think it wouldn't necessarily have to be somebody famous. Um, I, there's been people throughout my life I've probably looked upon and sort of quite liked the way they, as you said, carry themselves or speak or, or just their general confidence. And I think every job I've held or every sort of maybe line manager I've worked under, I've tried to, as you've just you know very nicely put it, see what, what do I think they do well and what do I think they could do better. Um I think everyone, nobody's ever finished article, right? Um, I completely agree. And, and yeah, I mean, I've I've tried to then maybe sort of, I suppose, mould my professional sort of mannerisms to that, but also my personal. Um, as I touched upon earlier, I think the last couple of years for me was a really good point where almost the brakes got slammed on. And for the first time in my life, I think I wasn't necessarily able to go to work. And work has been a very big sort of driving factor for me to achieve and push and work and and sort of earn certain accolades in terms of where I've reached in a career and suddenly that was gone so I had no choice but to then sit there and think who am I as a person what do I enjoy what do I need to work on um and I think I've I've listened to a few of your podcasts actually and I think you touch upon things like mental health quite a lot and I think it's just something that has become a lot more present in in the current day but I think we we kind of came from a culture of living life at 100 miles an hour and pushing on and working through and just maybe sort of exhausting ourselves. So, yeah, I mean, sort of without diverging too sort of far off the question, I mean, certainly meeting him was an inspirational moment for myself. But as I said, lots of people I've met have kind of inspired me in, in other ways. But I think with Moyes, there was almost that inner child aspect of being a West Ham fan. And the moment I met him was, um, it was quite surreal, actually, because I was, I was the head physio at Gillingham at the time. And I was sat in the manager's office after the game. And um, the, the manager at the time was Steve Evans. And he much liked a team debrief after the game. So we would all go up to his office. Um, there'd be him, his assistant, Paul Rayner, myself, um, the goalkeeping coach and the fitness coach. And it would just be a general chit-chat and quite often the opposition manager would then come along and have a brief sort of chat and say hello, maybe have a drink with a manager and we would all sort of depart and that would sort of be the, the cut-off of our day. And um, it was just unexpected. We played West Ham in an FA Cup game and it was a great night, great atmosphere, probably my favourite moment um, as a sports physio. And for him to just kind of come in and just be there, uh, sort of saying hello and chatting to people like he's a friend, it was just, um, like I said, that inner child moment of, you know, oh, you know, the, the West Ham manager's here and can't believe it. But he was, like I say, very down to earth, very normal. And I think that's something through my career that, you know, I quite often talk to friends about and they might ask who maybe or or what certain persons like that you maybe worked alongside and I always kind of say that they are just normal human beings you know they they're all normal be sort of humans and 
they generally the the kind of chit chat you'll have with them is is the same you might have with your mate down the pub, you know. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I agree. I think um, I think especially like if you look at these days, especially on social media and stuff like that, I think they're they're seen as something else. As extra, yeah, extra. Well, they because obviously what whatever money they're on or what they do for a living and the the abuse they get but ultimately at the end of the day they're just people that want to play football and obviously they want to compete and they want to improve every day yeah exactly Unfortunately, people don't get to see see that side of things it's it's tough isn't it because i think as a as a hard working sort of maybe football fan when you're paying your hard earned money to watch and you don't feel it's been up to scratch i think you do have a certain right to be able to sort of offer your opinions but I also think, again, like you say, it's it's very easily forgotten that they're normal normal people who are doing a the job they're getting paid for. They're just, you know, lucky enough to uh, be physically able and and sort of skilled in in that manner. But they they've still got sort of feelings and emotions. And again, it touches on what we said before about mental health. I think it's a man's game traditionally. I know there's a, a huge sort of like improvement in the women's side of the game, but. Um, there used to be that whole mentality, didn't there, of, oh, you know, man up, get on with it. Yeah. And, uh, you know, I, I think it's easy to forget that. But that that said, they're, they're often the first to admit when they've had a bad game or, you know, they'll give each other a bit of banter. So I think equally, most stuff can get taken on the chin, can't it? <laughs> Right, where do we start? So I'll start briefly. Um, obviously, I'm a, a physiotherapist, fully qualified physio. I know you've also had um, sports therapists on the podcast, and there's often a comparison between the two. But I chose to go down the physiotherapy route, but I went through um, an alternative route. So I finished college, and I did a BTEC in sports science and anatomy at the time, I think it was called, which was the equivalent of A-levels. Um, I probably should have gone to uni um, back then if if I could sort of maybe do things differently, I might have done. But I ended up going to uni a few years later um, after sort of experiencing a bit of life. And I actually think it gave me a better perspective grounding to knuckle down and work hard. So I ended up doing uni part-time um, over a four-year period while I was working as a physiotherapy assistant. Um, I did that in the NHS setting and in hospitals. And I think, again, throughout that time in my career, I ended up working, enjoying my job. I, you know, a therapy assistant, again, back then used to do a bit of answering the phones, filing notes, assisting in gym sessions, classes, that kind of stuff, doing a bit of running around. And again, I think it gave me a bit of a grounding, almost like an internship, I, I suppose you could call it. And then I decided that I'd kind of, in my mind, I'd outgrown that a little bit. The The hospital I was at was in Basildon in Essex. I'd cycled through every four months. We did rotations in different specialties, sort of orthopedics, neurology, outpatients, uh, hydrotherapy, sort of, which is water-based therapy, amputee classes. So I've got a very early exposure to almost the link of what I'm doing sort of now. Um, and then I moved hospitals because, again, I'd been there for three and a half years. 
and found a uh, a therapy assistant job again, but more specialising in musculoskeletal, which we'll probably more commonly know as sort of muscles, bones, and sports injuries, that kind of stuff. Your day to day surgeries. Um, interviewed there, got the job. Um, it involved very heavily being in hydrotherapy, so again the water based work and outpatients which was another step to me where I wanted to kind of head into uh, the MSK and sporting world. Was there for a significant amount of time and then was fortunate enough to get offered the opportunity to go and... So I was offered the opportunity, fortunately enough, to go and study and um, I received an NHS bursary. So it took the pressure off of, of needing to kind of fund studying. So one of the things that always put me off was you know, racking up student debt. And, and I was really torn between, you know, I'm earning money here. I'm, you know, living, enjoying life, um, but I want more. So that was really, really sort of a significant turning point for me. Studied for four years, kept my job. Um, at the same time, began working a little bit in uh, semi-professional football, doing a voluntary um, year's work placement at Chatham Town. Um, again, got a real eye-opener into sports. And from there, finished my degree. And in the final year of my degree, I was offered an opportunity to work with Charlton um, sort of Boys Academy, which, as you've just sort of mentioned, is where we met. Did that for four and a half years, um, progressively sort of dug my heels in around a full time NHS job. Um, so I was doing three to four evenings a week plus Saturdays, um, sort of leading the under 16s game days. Um, that obviously was another step forwards, learned an awful lot there under lots of different people. Uh, took, again, felt like I kind of pushed myself as much as possible. Went and worked for a year at West Ham um, in a more casual capacity, which was a step into a Premier League environment. Um, I found after a year there, I kind of almost sort of slightly fell out of love with football a little bit. I think I'd sort of hit a little bit of burnout after sort of many years of working hard. Took a little step back for a few months. And then um, sometimes I think the stars align in certain situations. I was actually contacted by um, Steve Evans, the, the Gillingham first team manager at the time via LinkedIn. He'd obviously somehow come across uh, my profile and CV on there. Um, sort of got in touch, asked a few questions invited me for a coffee. I wasn't really looking to necessarily get involved back in football at that time. I was enjoying a little bit of just normality. Uh, met him for a coffee, got the bug and had a bit of a chat, then was interviewed a bit further and, and again was, was offered the role, very exciting role of, of head physio at Gillingham um, as they had a gap to fill. So I think again, sometimes opportunities come along at the right moment. Um, then COVID hit sort of a year later so you know enjoyed a very very good solid year heading up a department very confidently testing myself and everything I'd learned up to that point um, financial situations at the club meant unfortunately a few of us moved on and then we was in sort of a deep lockdown at that point so I think again I was having real sort of struggles with what to do I'd, I'd been at home for a, a sort of a three four week period and my previous sort of relationship with staff at Charlton came to fruition. They offered me some work. 
Um, they were you know, sort of struggling a little bit on the medical aspects with numbers. I think they needed a few pairs of hands. So got an opportunity to go back in there and work with the first team. Um, also in the off-season, the under-23s. Then back with the first team a little bit this season. And um, more recently, sort of literally within the last couple of weeks, I've taken a step back completely from Charlton as uh, I was holding a casual contract there around my private work. Um, they no longer needed any assistance and it kind of come in a, a, again almost like stars aligning. Um, we're a situation where I've accepted the role with the England national team amputee side, stepped back a little bit from Charlton and the the private work has, has really kind of skyrocketed again in the past couple of months. So I know I know quite extensive sort of chat there, but I kind of can't really do it justice really with without sort of mentioning those things briefly. But very varied, very widespread sort of experiences, I think. But I think each one of those experiences has given me a really good platform. Um, lots of learning points, lots of good people met, lots of good connections along the way. And all been a little bit of a stepping stone in, on onto sort of the the next things, really. Why, why did you want to go into physiotherapy? Um, I didn't actually necessarily want to at the very beginning. So, my my B Tech that I, I initially did was it was more I thought I wanted to go along sort of the coaching route or maybe the teaching route so it was looking towards a progressive step into maybe going to university to do sort of PE teaching um, but then it was when we started doing all of the anatomy modules it kind of something really kind of sort of resonated with me and I really enjoyed learning about how the body moved how it worked it there was just something very fascinating about it. Um, and then once I finished that, I actually took a, a short contract working abroad um, for a luxury holiday company. And throughout the BTEC, I'd earned um, like a lifeguarding qualification and an FA level one coaching badge and uh, a futsal badge, which I've never, ever really used since. But the job that I took in, in Greece, of all places, um was really great but it made me also realize i wanted more because there were some physios and some sports masters on the holiday resort and i used to spend a fair bit of time with them chatting to them learning a little bit from them and that i suppose is what triggered my next part of the interest after the stuff at college then spending time with these guys the fun part had kind of gone, you know, I'd done six or so months out in the sunshine and in some cash drinking a few beers and I wanted to come back and do a little bit more. So that nudged me towards, right. Okay. If I want to make a serious career, I need to go back and I need to find something more worthwhile. And then again, I do, I do look back on a lot of sort of times in my career later on. And it's almost like things appeared at the right time. So Again, the physiotherapy assistant job within the NHS, it just, I think of, I think it was either a relative or a friend, I think showed me it. And it was in one of the backs of the local newspapers um, at the time. They were still doing sort of ad, job adverts in newspapers. And again, applied, shortlisted, interviewed, um, got it. 
and then drove it on from there. I think from I remember the very first day I walked into a hospital, the smells, the sights, the sounds, there was something that felt right about it at that time. And and as I said to you, I, I kind of just threw myself into it like I do everything I do and then acted like a sponge and probably annoyed a few people along the way, asked too many questions, pestered people, stayed, stayed late, you know, stuck my head in the gym when people are doing things that I, I maybe at the time didn't know what they was. And I, that's why I say, you know, going back to your Moyes question earlier on is I've always just looked upon what people do well or why they do it. And I, I'm not afraid to ask, really. Um, apologies if some of my answers are a little bit drawn out. Uh, I just sometimes it's once you start talking, it's just then trying to fit in all the details. I just uh, I don't want to take up too much time on particular things for you. No, no, that's um, that's the beauty of the podcast, mate. Like I said, it's uh, it what I found and what other people have said when they feed back on it, it, it brings back a lot of um, reflections and, and memories and experiences. Absolutely, absolutely. So, because what I was going to say when you were talking about, um, so in terms of your experiences there in Greece and obviously went to the hospital, I was going to say like it's amazing how how like one experience encourages to move on to or encourage you to carry on on to that route. For example, like Warren, you know Warren Clark, who's our last guest. Yes, yeah, yeah. He he spoke about coaching about he he did like um like a level one, but he but that that experience there was the uh, foundation for him to go on coaching. And I think, I think for me, mine's the same. Like I did, um, I coached out in America and I loved it when, when I finished uni. And that encouraged me to do more. But like you said, it wasn't, I did me um, six, seven months out there and I had fun. Yeah. But I wanted to come down and come back home and get my head down and try and improve as a coach. I think, I, I don't know whether you'd agree or, or whether some listeners would agree, but I think, what hit home for me sort of during certain times is what what would I like to do now, but what could I also see myself doing in 10 years' time? And I think we're, we're trapped within a society, I think, where our pressures are that we need to obviously pay the rent or the bills or the mortgage every month, um, raise kids, you know, the short-term goals, you know, buy new trainers, go on holidays, and there's certain amounts of things you need to achieve in the short term. But... I also think there's still also that pressure from a young age as to what do you want to be? What do you want to do? What do you want to go and study at college? What do you want to study at uni? And sometimes you don't know. And I think every job that I've ever had right back from the start, I think I've always looked upon it as an opportunity of what could I gain from this? And even if it was, okay, at the moment, that's going to earn me some money, but are there any transferable skills? And I think there's a lot of youngsters that maybe need to understand it's okay to not know. And in rather rather than maybe sort of be pressured into, you know, at an early age, what do you want to do or, or how are you going to achieve it? It's probably encourage people to go and try things, you know, especially when we are younger. If you are in a situation where you live at home, it's, it's probably the best time to maybe try four or five different things that you think you might enjoy or uh, maybe passions and then then you're going to learn I think a little bit from each experience and see whether you actually can make a career of it as well completely agree I think um, transferable skills are very important I don't think you realize how important they are until you have got older 
where if somebody hasn't done it, it might be too late. Or do you know what I mean? Six, seven down years of line, thinking back now. I'm really glad I've done that. Yeah, and I think, um, you know, again, throughout my career, I've worked with many people, you know, like alongside, say, like yourself, you know, sports coaches, um, you know, in, in the NHS, doctors, nurses, cleaners. I've had some fantastic conversations with cleaners and some people in the world might look upon certain jobs as, as beneath them. But, you know, I think, you know, whether you're a cleaner or whether you're a, a you know, top level sports consultant, I think, you know, when you have a connection or you can you can sort of speak to people, I think you're the world's your oyster for learning. I think you can learn some great sort of life lessons from the people you least expect to as well. Yeah, yeah again. Yeah, couldn't couldn't agree more. But everyone's got stories that I didn't know. Um, my neighbour two doors down, he, he played in the um African Cup of like under eighteen African Cup of Nations. Oh, really? Yeah, and he, he's got some great stories and how like. But but obviously, I think what he does now. Well, actually, I don't know what he does now. Um, but you like you wouldn't talk to him. So only like only when you get start talking to him, and he, he's got some great great advice, great experience. You start talking to people that work in other businesses, and you can see how it relates to what you do as well. It's, but I, I think, think you got, I think I have that personality to go out and do that though. I think it's yeah, of course. It's it's easy. Yes, it's easy for us to say certain things, isn't it? But yeah. I think confidence is key. And like I said to you, you know, I I was never afraid to ask questions, but I'm aware that for some people that that's a that's a huge challenge. But it does come down to your personality and and I think one thing I've always then tried to do is if someone asks me a question I've tried to be available and open-minded to helping them answering them I think we can all tell if someone's nervous or whether they're confident and I think it, I've always where no matter what job I've had or whatever experiences I've had I know that at some point I I wasn't experienced or I didn't know something and somebody helped me get there. So I've always tried to then utilize that and, and sort of give back almost. I think um, I listened to, I think to, uh, you had Tom Birch on, didn't you? The sports therapist. Yeah. And he was talking about the differences between sports therapy and physio. And yeah. I completely agreed with what he said is that physios obviously do tend to have a bit of an NHS background, but the one thing for me I found through the NHS uh, kind of experiences is that it, it it forces you to be put in front of difficult situations and conversations with people you might not normally have them with. And you see worlds from a different perspective. You know, you see people at their worst in a hospital. And that was as... literally my, sorry, that was my second question I was going to ask. Sorry, go on. Yeah. yeah, go for it. Go on. So I was going to ask how, how did... Yeah, so I've got down here how you um, obviously deal with different people. How did that help you then in a sporting set, like when you worked in a sporting environment? So I think, I think again, to be fair, sort of elaborating on where we was just going with that is um, I was a young man and to be put into a hospital environment or on work placements um, in situations where people are poorly, for a variety of reasons you've got no choice but to feel grateful for your own life that you're living and the one thing I've always done is I've tried to work in a very honest manner so in in a hospital it might be that I need to break news to 
you know, a young man who's got an ankle sprain that he can't play football for the next four to six weeks. Or when you're on sort of intensive care wards and you've just finished sort of suctioning someone's husband's chest full of, you know, phlegm because he's on a ventilator and an induced coma, you've got, again, to learn how to speak to his wife or his children who are there waiting outside for some news or an update. So I think, like I say, what it did for me was it just makes you feel firstly grateful for your own life, but also, too, to think if this news was being broken to me, how would I like it to be said? You know, like, how would I react if someone needed to tell me what's just happened or, or, you know, the bad news. And I think if you then treat people like people, regardless of if I'm the physio and you're the relative or, like I said, you know, no matter how experienced someone is, whether I'm 15 years experienced and I'm talking to someone who's in their first week of their course, I always found that if you treat people like people, you get a lot of respect back and you suddenly start breaking down barriers. You know, I think there's a lot of resistance um especially within the nhs because people might have waited a long time to see you they might come with a bit of frustration already and i think if you give them a few moments to i used to call it venting really or offloading but if you give them a few minutes to explain their journey and what might be frustrating them you get it all kind of out on the table and then you can move forwards from there so again I'm aware that in the NHS we've got time constraints, there's there's other issues, there's bureaucracy, politics, but I always just looked upon it as I'm there to do a job. So when I transitioned from there into sport, it just became a different conversation with a different priority. So, you know, working in first team football, for example, you've you've got a pressure of these guys are seen as assets, they're they're very skillful, they're important to the team. They're being paid, you know, quite handsomely for, for their work. Um, and you just, again, have to translate those messages in the right way. It's, you know, if, if I had to break the news to a manager, um, you know, like I said, at Gillingham, there was no one above me. So it was me going upstairs thinking, how do, uh, how do I speak to Mr. Evans about, you know, so-and-so not being available at the weekend? Some days that message would go across quite nicely. Other days, I would imagine as, as, a, as a manager, it was a very frustrating thing to be told. But the one thing, again, you know, I found, you know, in that relationship was, again, honesty was key. You know, from the moment I met Steve, for example, um, at Gillingham, we was just sharing a coffee and we had a very informal chat and, and we spoke about how important honesty is. And it was quite nice to, again, have a chat with someone who's been in the game for many, many years. And, you know, he's a, he's a character where I'm, I'm very aware that people have got different opinions. You know, there's mixed opinions. But also, again, you know, you're there to do a job. Can you do the job to the best of your abilities? And I said to him from day one, I said, you know, I may not always be your favourite person. You may not always like what I've got here. But what I will do is tell you the truth and I'll be honest with you. And, um, you know, hopefully we can just build that relationship from there. And it did. It worked fine. So, again, kind of rounding up there, it doesn't matter whether I've spoken to, you know, little Billy's mum about his, his broken foot or, you know, 
one of one of the the football league managers who's been in the game for 20 30 years i think again treating people like people is the overall message for me this is maybe a similar question how did you how did you find say the, the changing room environment as a obviously as a physiotherapist maybe not as not seen probably that's probably changed these days but not seen as a as a main staff although i think i think it is how, how did you find that changing room environment of trying to get players to obviously do what you want if you're taking tests or treating players um so for me um the changing environment's an interesting one because i think again you've got you, you get a really good chance to see some real personalities. So I think once people go out onto the pitch and they cross that white line, it's business time. And uh, I think in the changing rooms is where, you know, on a day-to-day basis, people are coming in for training. They're, they're chatting about things, you know, places they might have been, things they've done, uh, plans they've got for, I don't know, after the game. And then it's almost like the mindset switches. So it's it's a very interesting place to be when that happens because one minute, you know, the lads might have their music on, you know, throwing the banter around and stuff. Next minute, coach could walk in, right, you know, click of the fingers, music's off and, and the serious face comes out. So I think that's where you probably learn as a member of staff the pressures of sport and the pressures that sport can bring that that maybe your average fan appreciate because they haven't seen it. I think seeing something is quite powerful because you retain the memory of it. Um, as a staff member, though, like you say, I think I was always treated with the respect that I suppose our positions come with. So even, you know, even in the academy days back at Charlton, I would always involve parents in a conversation or the change room and the dressing room for, for the young lads was exactly the same as it is for the full-time, you know, grown adult pros. Um, they would all be having a laugh with their mates. They'd put their music on. Um, and then if, if we needed to do something with them as a physio, you very much got your own space. You might pop into the dressing room. You ask, you know, one of the lads to come out. You might want to strap him from, but you was, Part of that team and I think the one thing I've really always enjoyed about sport and I think it's what lures me back and 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 I really kind of enjoy is is that that connected atmosphere you're you're a group of people you know whether it's going out on a Saturday to get the three points or whether you want to obviously you know win a cup game you know win a promotion I think it's that kind of feeling of togetherness and almost I think if you've got the right mentality and you're and you're good with the people you you're absorbed into that so i've never found it a, a particular if that makes sense okay so not even if um in terms of like maybe change of management like um coaching and stuff um you, have you just been allowed just to carry on what you're doing yeah so obviously i never experienced that in my time at gillingham and through the academy years that i worked um that was never an issue because I think in an academy setting, um, that's that's less common, you know. So if staff, coaches or managers come and go, that doesn't really affect the medical team. Um, my my only experience of that and a change of sort of atmospheres and things, I think, is is through sort of the more recent COVID times, where 
I did some, like I said, casual work with, with. So there was a period of time I was in every day, um, you know, in a normal sort of normal role. Um, and it was under Lee Bowyer. And then Lee Bowyer um, left and went to Birmingham. And uh, Nigel Adkins came in. And I think the the kind of consensus was that you learn to work in a certain way under a certain manager. I never really had any communications or dealings at Charlton with the management like I would have done at Gillingham because I was, uh, I was, you know, in a team of three or four physios compared to being the head physio uh, in my previous role. So I didn't have to have the awkward conversations, but you could tell that the mood would change um, once the new manager came in. And I think the only reason it changed is because when you then sort of talk to players is they, they feel it's very different learning styles so I, I think a lot of what sort of changed the mood in that environment is that, you know, one coach likes the coach in one way and has got his own ways. And then, you know, suddenly someone comes in who is sort of very different and that's going to alter, I suppose, the uh, the mechanics of a dressing room or, or an environment. Oh, yeah, well put. Um, any, um, any crazy stories in the... In the... <laughs> physio room you can you can tell <laughs> um probably none really um there's there's probably no crazy stories like people would love to hear i think there's been many conversations about people's dogs and children and, and holidays they've been on or you know things like that but i can't i can't tell you anything too wacky i'm afraid um some very interesting conversations that you know i you know i wouldn't sort of name names or divulge or i digress on but you have some great conversations with some great personalities. Um, you know, at, at times when, you know, you're sitting there thinking, I'm on the clock and I'm working, but actually, you you know, you're in the gym, the music's on, you're having a conversation with someone. Um, and like I say, I've always just embraced it for what it is. There's, there's, there's certainly some very good characters within sport, and I think that's the thing is you bring people together that make, cross paths if if they were living a normal life yeah um so i, I want to take it back again so obviously when you start when you're working like academy football and said yeah like obviously academy football is like they are it's unsociable hours isn't it how, how did you deal with the uh of pressures of obviously you've got two kids um yeah so the pressures of um, private life with your work life because like i said you had a chat and you also work with the NHS. You had a family as well. How how, how did you deal with that? Um, so I, I've recently reflected on this actually, and I think sometimes now, looking back on how I did live my life then, I don't think I could do it now. I think the the goalposts have shifted. But um, you know, although I've got two children, I've got a very amicable relationship with their mum. We're not together anymore. Um, so. I've got to be very honest. She's always been quite supportive of my goals always were when we were together in professional football. Um, and just because we split up, the the kind of respect from her was still that if I needed to do something within a certain role, she was quite accommodating and helpful with that. And on the flip side, as many sort of jobs as I've held in my life, I always refer to my favourite job is as being a dad. 
you know it's one of you know the best things i think ever happened to me you know you grow up fast um you know it makes you sort of feel very grateful for everything around you and you're suddenly this protector for a small human so um juggling it became easier in that sense but at the same time if i run you through briefly what my week used to be when i knew you at charlton um many moons ago i used to do monday to friday in the nhs and i would do 8 a.m till 4 p and then i'd make a quick dash from dartford to eltham to the charlton training ground and i was generally doing monday tuesday thursday and quite often friday evenings from 4 30 till around nine o'clock um and then saturdays would be a game day for the under 16s so i would actually do clinics in the evenings for the academy guys and that could be anywhere between sort of two and 20 kids during those days um and i was the only one quite often there and then game days on saturday tended to be sort of morning kickoffs so i'd have to get myself ready for maybe at the club for half nine games would kick off about 11 um, if it was a home game, if it was an away game, I'd have to factor in travelling there. And then done by about one one thirty. And then I would generally have the kids um, on a Saturday evening and a Sunday if I wasn't working. Um, and again, it, it become a bit of a robotic life. So that's why you know, I say I, I don't know whether I could do it now because at the time I had a very deep motivation and uh, I've always had a strong work ethic. So at the time, I, I didn't see it as a problem. I thought, do you know what? And the more clinics I do, the more I'll learn. The more I learn, the better opportunities I'll get. Um, and I think Tom Birch mentioned, the guy who was above me at the time at Charlton, the lead academy physio, was a guy called Joe Ranson. Yeah. And he was very good at um, kind of running a team in the sense of if you worked hard and you showed loyalty and, you know, the feedback was good from coaches or staff that you'd worked with he would very much like to promote from within so when I very very first started at Charlton I only started doing some pitch side stuff on a Sunday and I think I started working with the under 12s and it would be every other weekend but again I knew from that first game I did that's where I wanted to be but I also wanted more so I loved working with them every other week but I was like okay you know, how do I become good enough to work in the clinic? And then I got a chance and started doing one night a week, two nights a week. Then it was, could you do three? Could you do four? And there was never a point where I was like, do you know what? I'm going to get really tired here. I can't do this. It was just, yeah, yeah, I'll do it. I'll do it. I'll do it. Because again, it was an environment I wanted to be in. It was, you know, every, every sort of new injury I saw was a learning curve. It was a building block for me. And the reason I reflected on it recently is because through lockdown, I, you know, I like many people have probably gone the other way and I've been to the gym less and I've watched what I eat less in the last year because I've just enjoyed not necessarily having to be too accountable. But back then, what, what all these jobs and this routine gave me was an amazing structure where I would prep my food so I would prep my breakfast, I'd prep my lunch to eat at the hospital, I'd prep another meal to eat at about six o'clock if the clinic was quiet, and then I would generally go in the gym at about nine o'clock in the evening. So I was in such a regimented routine that I was actually in the best shape of my life, 
physically and mentally. Um, and more recently, I've looked upon it as I haven't had that structure and it's been very difficult to try to claw that back. Yeah, um, sorry, silence. I was um, yeah, reflecting on because I was the same. I never saw it as a, never saw it as work. Like I said, I always saw it as a to try and improve, and 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 you enjoyed it. So I was always buzzing. I loved the match day. Exactly. I, I think training, but I think the only I think obviously when I started to have trouble, I think that's for me. That's when it started to go downhill. Yeah, it's and, it's it's tough, isn't it? Because you don't always realise it at that moment. And uh, to me, I, I've struggled now because, like I said, I think back now, I can't like, do that again. So there's still, for me, there's still a barrier for me to overcome because I don't, I don't think I would go back into that lifestyle. But I think, I, I think if I did, I'd be, I'd be going back a lot smarter and wiser. Yeah, it's it's that whole uh, in hindsight, isn't it? It's looking yeah. at things with hindsight. I mean, I'm I'm never going to claim to someone looking to go into sports that it's it's easy. Because I think that's a message that needs to be portrayed is when you watch the Premier League on TV or the Champions League and you see all these staff sitting on the bench or or whatever roles they might be holding. I mean, obviously, that's a small minority. But as you know yourself, the the dark reality is there's there's many hours being given in an unsociable capacity for very little money. Um, I think those evening clinics I used to do, I would work um, four and a half hours maybe five hours depending if it overran and I think after tax I was only taking home about 35 quid so again for me the hours I was putting in equated to quite a nice little bit of pocket money but I knew I couldn't live on it and I never relied upon it either so it was never about the money for me so I took an opportunity at the time when the money wasn't important but the opportunity was but I think there's a lot of sports therapists and a lot of new graduates that maybe think that it's a really, really easy thing to just transition into sport. And I think it probably needs to be made a bit clearer that it really isn't. Um, you know, there's been times in my career that, I mean, as I've got older um, and again wiser, it's about having that self-respect, you know. I uh, I was offered a, a, a full-time role or sort of to apply for a full-time role at Charlton during the lockdown period. And while it was great to be there, I mean, the, the sort of financial sort of remuneration on offer was was really poor. And I actually had an open conversation with some staff members there and said, you know, like, I can't do that. You know, as a dad of two children with bills to pay, you know, they're asking you, you know, depending on what club I guess they're all similar and sort of in budgets they're asking you to often take a you know a position full-time which will include evenings weekends traveling away you know really committing to a lifestyle um for you talking about sort of like five six seven thousand pounds less than your average um NHS physio with a couple of years experience so you know the challenges of actually being within sport. I think they're quite, they're quite large. You know, there's a lot of people I know currently within sort of roles within full-time football, who, again on Instagram or on you know on sort of the outside looking in, you think it's a great life, and it is, in many respects, but it's just not financially. Yeah, I think I think Warren Clark previous episode again. He's he alluded to the same points as well, but it's like it's enjoyable. But it's, it's not easy. 
No, and this is the thing is memories and experiences don't necessarily pay for, you know, your mortgage or, or for your, your flight to go on holiday, do they? So, you know, you, you end up wrestling with your conscience and thinking, right, I love this job. But at the same time, you know, is, is it right? And you can't then make a, a three, five or ten year plan because, you know, the uncertainty of sport is that in the professional game, I haven't experienced it myself, but managers come and go. And, you know, the Sam Allardyce era, you know, he used to take his staff around with him. And I guess you are similar to players in the sense of if there's always maybe a, a sort of a, you know, you, your head could be on the chopping block at any point. Um, so is obviously now you've got a, your own private business now. Is that like a blessing in disguise? So would that allow you then maybe to take that that role up? Like Charlton, if it was to come about again, obviously I know you've got the amputee with job now. But if, you, um, if your practice was built up like it is now, would that be a, like you said, like pocket money, a hobby, you can go out there and enjoy it? Um, yeah, I think what it's done is, um, you know, I'll, the private business... Um, started again it was born out of a conversation with a colleague at Charlton in the academy um his name's Hussein Torgut and he's the head physio at Bromley at the moment and we just had a conversation one day about you know we, we would regularly cross paths and and speak about how you know we're always here and we're always working and and it was always I think he he had ambitions to sort of open his own clinic as well and he was a sports therapist and we was having conversations about maybe doing something for quite a long time and then he took the plunge and kind of said, I'm, I'm going to do this. Do you want, you know, almost, do you want to come along for the ride? You know, you're a physio, I'm a sports therapist. We can work hand in hand. We can complement each other. Let's, let's give this a go. And uh, again, I trusted, you know, I trust him with my life. You know, he's a fantastic guy. Um, we've, we've got the same kind of thoughts and values, you know, professionally. And I just knew it would work. And it started off, that started off as, again, you know, a slow burner. It took some time. But we've we've grown to a point now where, um, sort of with the business, we've you know we're very fortunate. We see sort of your average Joe Public one to one clients. Um, we've covered sports events because of our previous sort of roles within sports. Um, I've been fortunate enough to work on you know some TV sets for you know adverts and things. You know we've covered we've covered a Nike advert. Um, you know I was very fortunate enough to do some work. Um. I think it was the it was the Molly May era of Love Island, um, the the filming of the adverts for Love Island. There's been some really great experiences. Well, I thought out. I recognised you carrying the background. <laughs> it really wasn't. It really wasn't. <laughs> I, you know, I got I got to sit in a room quietly and uh, and and you know be there as a medical presence. But you know those kind of experiences it, again. It it kind of really kind of hits home to me that. You know, our business was born out of an initial conversation and again, a desire to want a little bit more than, you know, some average pay and, you know, work until late in the evening. But what what it's done is is having the private business has made me also realise your own worth. So, you know, again, I've always had those honest conversations with people within sport is I've actually sort of said no to applying to roles or why I couldn't do a certain role or want to do a role because I've made selfish decisions and said, well, actually, if I come and work for you full time and give you 
40, 50 hours a week for 30K a year, you know, why would I do that actually? Because I'm going to take my time away from my children. Um, and also, you know, I can earn maybe sort of 45K a year or 50K a year and work maybe a third less of the time over the course of the year. And I can have more evenings at home. I can enjoy more weekends, you know. So the the business is, you know, it's made me very choosy. And I think as I've gained experience and I've I've, I've held these roles, it's also made me look back at sort of 16, 17-year-old me and think, the the ambition was to always achieve being a head physio uh working in professional football and then obviously life throws its curveballs and the one thing that i've always said is if i didn't have kids i'd probably have heavily invested myself within the sporting world and not worried so much about the money you know you can you can rent a room you can you can live you know a little bit more frugally but that's that's my choices you know my you know and i've always respected that a football club is a business they have a budget they may only pay a certain amount of money so i don't tend to enter too heavily into the conversations of of those kind of opportunities unless i think it's going to benefit me so answering your question again is the business will always come first these days until comes such a point that maybe you know the kids are older or you know, for example, lockdown, you know, private business was, it was, it was dead. You know, we, we had to shut doors. We wasn't treating anybody, you know, the world was in a place where we couldn't. So again, with the greatest respect to football is it gave me a lifeline. You know, like I said, my previous relationships with staff at the club um, happened to throw me a lifeline. And every moment that I was with Charlton through the pandemic, um, I would give them my all, you know, I would happily go above and beyond or stay late or come in early. You know, I was, I was, I was willing to again, do what they wanted because I recognized that although it wasn't the most convenient, it was certainly helping me pay my bills. And it was in, in an area that I very much enjoyed, you know, I've, I don't feel whether you're on a coach for, for eight hours coming back from Blackpool or, you know, whether you're, at the training ground on a sunny summer's day sport for me has never been a place where I feel like I'm at work if that makes sense so I've always enjoyed being there it's never been an issue to wake up to the alarm in the morning to go to that kind of job when there are people out there who've, who've you know have got it a lot tougher and they're having to work an awful lot harder than than maybe we have in certain points yeah. uh, to, to, to just again you know to, to keep the bread and butter on the table yeah, again, well put. I like I like the saying, um, and I think if there's any younger people listening, I think own realizing your own worth. I think that's all self worth is. Um, I think that's a massive one. It it is. I mean, there's grey area. I think because yeah. um, you know, you I I've you know my parents were were great at sort of from a young age making us work hard. My dad at fourteen made us get paper rounds. You know, it was always. If you want something, you work for it. Um, I'm aware that some people's thought processes aren't like that. I think there could be a culture within some parts of of the country of, um, you know, people want things as easy as possible, right? Well, yeah, I had, um, for example, even at school today, uh, form time, they filled out these sheets about their strengths and qualities. 
Yeah. And someone did it. Oh. oh, I said, like, it was embarrassing. It was basically sleep on the phone, go shopping. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And I think I'm going to work. That, that's it. I think it could easily get lost is, um, I, you know, I will always believe and I'll always try and instill in my kids that hard work will take you far in life. And I do, I do believe in that. I truly do. But I also think if you work too hard, you can also hit burnout. You know, you can work too hard in an environment that isn't actually enhancing yourself. So that's where the self-worth kind of comment comes from. Because I think you have to look at an opportunity at the start and say, right, okay, like I said, what can it give me? What can I gain from this? But equally, there might come a point in that journey where that opportunity is not as beneficial for you anymore. And it, it shouldn't be frowned upon, I think, if you decide that actually then is the right time to move on or or then is the right time to seek a better opportunity. I think you should always strive for more and but also equally appreciate the opportunities that you, you're either in or that you've had. Yeah, well I think I just I think well I just enjoyed it. I think I, I think I forgot about what self worth was. Mm. Which yeah. Easily done, though. Easily yeah. done. Congratulations on the new role. I appreciate it. Thank you very much. It's um, hope hopefully going to turn out to be uh, an exciting step on on the career path. How did it come about? Yeah, no, it's all right. Um, to be fair, it was something that I applied for quite a while ago, but um. I didn't think much of it because obviously with it being a national team role, I've yeah. always had this kind of feeling that there's a, there's a little missing piece of the puzzle or I want to always test myself at the highest level. No matter where I've gone, I've always looked what is above that, like how far would I like to achieve things? So I, I applied, not necessarily expecting to hear much and then obviously got invited for an interview and was interviewed along with several other people, I believe. And, uh, even at that point, I thought, oh, you know, it's been a great experience. Um, Owen Coyle's son manages the side. And, uh, you know, even just speaking to him about the way they kind of work just felt good. And I, I come away and thought, I'd, I'd really like to have a crack at this if if I get the chance. And, and they come through and said, actually, they'd like to offer me the job. So it was really, really sort of humbling in, in some respects because I always find that, I don't know about most people, but I look upon it as I can always continue to learn. And I'm sure yeah. you'd probably resonate with that in terms of being a coach and stuff. You know, you can you can back yourself and I, I believe in backing yourself, but I think you can always learn more. And I think it depends on the people around you as to how you learn or, or where you continue to learn. But I was just buzzing to almost prove to myself that I was capable of, of you know, being worthy enough to, to take a role like that on. Are you going to do anything different with, for that role? Or is it you're just going to trust the process that you've been on? Like I said, honesty has been a big message. And think people with respect, are you, are you still going to continue with that? Yeah, very much so. I think, um, you know, as, as I sort of said earlier on, I'll take a little bit of every experience I've ever had and I'll try to take that into that new role. So I think for me... It was fantastic to be offered a national team role um, with the England amputee side. Um, the The current manager is Owen Coyle Jr., who is the son of Owen Coyle, the former Premier League manager, 
Um, it is, yeah, it is. So it's Owen Coyle Jr. Super. Um, really, really nice guy. And I think it's easy to buy into the project once you speak to him. He's very passionate and I believe he's held the role for about seven years now. And I think the way the world is at the moment, there's a real big sort of drive to be inclusive. And I think, I'll be very honest, I didn't realise until I saw the job advert advertised um, that there even was a national side for the amputees. Um, it's it's an area that I really enjoyed working in in the past um, through sort of my physiotherapy assistant experiences, um, learned the basics and, um, you know, was often working with diabetic patients and and sort of ex-military patients. And then through my career as a physio in the hospital, there was an awful lot of uh, opportunity throughout my time in the 16 years I was in the NHS in the end to, to touch base with amputees. So I'm going to take all of those experiences through professional football for the, the men's first teams um, and the NHS. And I'm going to try to sort of just bring that elite elite mentality again because that's that's uh that's what the manager has kind of sold the project as he wants to be as inclusive as possible he wants to win the world cup in turkey in october um from my understanding and knowledge and and what i've currently researched you know they're a very good side and he wants to continue to build on that elite approach. So he almost wants to deliver an elite national team program in the same capacity that we would do um, in in the sort of men's professional game. And like I said, once I spoke to the head of medical and, uh, you know, Owen Coyle Jr. himself, um, you know, it, it's, it's easy to buy into that. So I think it's not so much, I think, what I can bring to that I think it's what can I add to their already sort of high standards if that makes sense I think it needs to be kind of recognized I suppose that for me I applied thinking my worst case scenario was that I wouldn't get an interview my best case scenario is that you go all the way and you get offered the job and and as I said earlier I think you have to back yourself and um you know, I did, you know, I, I really enjoyed the sort of interview experience and listening to the project. And it just sounded like an exciting challenge. I remember coming off of the interview thinking, wow, you know, I really like what they want to do here. And I would love to be a part of it if if I'm lucky enough to be picked. And as much as I'll back myself, I will never, ever be overconfident and say, right, you know, I, I I have to get that role, you know, or I'm the best candidate. It's nice to be told you're the best candidate, um, but it's also good to remain humble. So I'm 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 buzzing for it if I'm honest. It's you know something that I think again resonates with me into sort of my earlier sort of career dreams, you know, back at college days or sort of early physio days, to think that this year could culminate in being in Turkey with the England sort of amputee side potentially lifting a World Cup. It's, it's you know, the stuff that dreams are made of, I think. Yeah, heard it here first, guys. Buzzing for you, mate. Buzzing for you. Um, so I'll put you on the spot here. Is there anything that you would do differently? Um, what, through, throughout my whole life or the career? Or... Yeah, is, is there one moment you... Recently or whenever you think, do you know what, for this role, I'm, I'm going to do something different now. I'm not, I'm not going to try, go about it that in that manner. 
That's a really, do you know, that's a very good question, actually. It's also a very tricky question because I think whether they've been good or bad experiences, um, I think they've all contributed to rounding me into maybe the person or the physio or the practitioner that I am today. So great answer. I don't, yeah, I don't think that I could actually say I would do anything differently. I might, you know, I might suggest that I would like the path to have been a bit easier, but at the same time, if it had been an easier path, again, I may not be the person I am today and I may not have even achieved the, you know, the opportunities that I have done. So, I'm gonna I'm gonna stick my neck out there and say no. Actually, you know I wouldn't change anything. I like that. Yeah, very good answer. Very good answer. I think um, I think there's a, there's a lot of people or a lot of people I've spoken to. I know you do definitely see in the kids where I think their fear of losing is greater than their appetite of winning. They're yeah, they're, they're too like what I mean is they're too scared to make a mistake. But look, and people do obviously you won't when you're 10, 15, 12, 15, year 10, whatever it is, you're not going to realize actually what well, that mistake actually made me a better person. No, of course, but you know, again, you make a good point there. I think it probably comes from the experiences that you have at school, right? Because I think most people would probably talk to you about a teacher that maybe they liked and then a teacher they also disliked. So, again it's you, you can take good and bad right because back in your school days when we're maybe sort of still learning and um you're easily a little bit more easily influenced you can take the good parts of why you liked that teacher but you can also find that a good teacher sets the grounding for maybe who you become in your later years as well it's not just your parents is it it's um exactly. you know i think school's a very powerful place kids if you're listening stay in school <laughs> great message um so last one then. So I'll do this at the end of every every episode. So if you see a, a young Gary walking down the road, what what do you tell him? Oh wow, you're uh, you drop. Uh, let's, let's say uh, yeah, sixteen to uh, twenty year old Gary walking down the road. Okay, you're dropping some bombs here with the questions. Some great questions. Um, sixteen to twenty year old Gary. I'd probably stop him and just. I'd probably just say that. Again, you know, at that age, I maybe wouldn't have backed myself nowhere near as much as I do now. So I'd probably just pass the message on and say, look, you know, get your head down, work hard. Everything will be okay if you do those two things. Because as I said, sort of for me, it's always been, I think every opportunity I've been given, I've been very grateful for to the people that have given it to me. But I also think I've deserved it because of the effort and work I've put in. So I would just tell him to, you know, keep working hard and things will be okay. Now we get to the serious part. This is what everyone tunes in for. Go on, go for it. The uh, isolation six aside. So those, any new listeners? So it's, we call it the isolation six aside because it's our guest plus five um, sportsmen or women. So it can be a coach, it can be a player, even be a commentator if you like. Um, plus a coach to manage these people in isolation. So uh, we'll leave the coach till last. Um, so yeah. let me, I'm just looking through some old things. So Phil Jackson, uh, Chicago, 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 oh, I can't talk, Chicago Bulls, and LA, he's LA Lakers, wasn't he? Because he won about 11 rings, if I'm correct. He, he was a famous one uh, that people have picked. Michael Jordan is a famous one. Uh, Anthony Joshua. Um, who else have people picked? Roy Keane was one. 
which I'm still working now, I think. I don't, I don't know if I would agree with him 20 years ago. I think that'd be a nightmare to be locked away with him. In yeah, it'd be, be quite hard, wouldn't it? Um, is this who people have picked as coaches? Is that who they've no, no, people, selected? Just people in general, people in general. Okay. Uh, Scotty Pippin was one. Um, which I actually read his uh, biography the other, just before Christmas, and that's a good breed. I recommend that. Nice, okay. So, who, who are you going for for your first, we'll call it your first player, and we'll do your coach last. Number six is obviously you. Uh, right, okay, so number one. So, I've, I've gone down a little bit of a traditional football route here, and um, I've gone more down the footballer route. So, I've picked, Ka- um, not Casper, sorry, um, Peter Schmeichel, because um, growing up as a young football fan, um, although I'm a West Ham fan, I absolutely loved the Man United side of many years ago when you had sort of Peter Schmeichel, um, you had the Beckhams, the Keens, um, and they were doing things like scoring two last-minute goals and lifting the Champions League trophy. So I always looked upon him as a, a really interesting guy, you know, an absolute mountain, yeah. um, but an absolute leader. And uh, the way he would shout at people and command people. So I went for him, um, sort of more in a goalkeeper or your first pick sense. Because I, I think, again, I'd love to have some conversations with him um, from a fan perspective about how he dealt with those experiences and, and how it how life was for him. And I also quite, quite respect how he is now and, and how he's uh, kind of helped his son go on to have a great career as well. Yeah. That is a, that's a strong pick. Yeah, not a bad one, I thought, yeah, to start with. That's, um, you've set the bar quite high there. Um, <laughs> number two, then, no pressure. Right, so this this flips it around a little bit. So this one I've named, obviously, in a defensive sense, and uh, I've gone for Sergio Ramos. And uh, the, reas- the reason is because I think, you know, you'll be in a, you're, you're a football fan. I'm sure you've heard everyone absolutely hammer Sergio Ramos for being... Uh, are we allowed to swear? Yeah, yes. Yeah. yeah, so, you know, you like me. I often hear him sort of termed um, as a shithouse, um, yeah. which you'll probably know a lot from football. But I actually, I like, again, what he what he kind of brought to the pitch. You know, he was a battler. He was a leader. He was a, he was a hardworking guy. And he kind of carved out a very good career, again, through the hard work. So that resonated with me, um, really. Um, in that sense, and and I suppose again, look into that leader figure. So again, someone that I watched these I watched these documentaries recently on Amazon, and um, I think that's what made me like him a bit more as a person because you get to see a little bit more behind the scenes of who he is. You know, time with his kids. You know, he's a normal man with with a family and a wife. But again, once he crosses that white line, he becomes a different sort of animal. So, again, another person I'd love to sit down and have a conversation with. Yeah, agree. I've, yeah, I've always been a fan of Sergio Ramos. I've yeah, I know. I know that will divide opinions. I think you'll probably find that some people absolutely, you know, can't stand him for, especially if you talk to Liverpool fans for what he did with Salah. But yeah, I was just thinking, um, just think I've got a couple of Liverpool mates in there. They don't. Yeah. See again, you know, was he clever or was it tactical? You know, that's 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 always going to be a question for over a cold pint, isn't it? But again, you know, I I like him. I I accept some people won't. 
I think he just knows how to play the game, doesn't he? On the ball and off the ball. Very much so. Very much. Okay, so Ramos, if you're mate, cold beer, and you can explain what your <laughs> full process behind everything. That's it. Maybe, maybe in Madrid, though. A bit warmer than here. Yeah, yeah. 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 Yeah, somewhere nice. Somewhere nice. Oh, it'd be Paris now, actually, wouldn't it? be Paris. Yeah, yeah, Paris. That'd be all right, wouldn't it? Yeah, I'll take either of those. Yeah, not Kent, mate. <laughs> Um, number three. Uh, so this one was easy for me. So uh, I've gone with David Beckham, and uh, this is because ever since I was a young lad, absolutely loved Beck's. Um, again, there's a bit of a pattern emerging here, I think, because again, for what he did in the World Cup, took an absolute hammer in. Absolutely loved and respected him for the way he kind of turned it around and become a little bit of a national sweetheart. But as a player. Always really liked his hard work rate. I was really fortunate enough to see him live several times. Um, you know, often, you know, when I had a season ticket at West Ham in my younger years, he could often be found putting it in the top corner from a free kick or, you know, delivering the decisive corner for Van Nistelrooy to break our hearts. But again, rated him as a player, liked his work rate, and again, just an all round sort of person of interest to me that, again, if I was stuck in isolation, I'd love to, I'd love to share a pitch and have a. Really, would love to sit down and tap into his brain about you know his life experiences. Yeah, I think everyone wanted to be Bex, didn't they, back in the day? Oh, absolutely, absolutely. The old mohawk, everything. Well, I yeah. think he's probably one of the only men that can carry off a skirt and a mohawk, right? Oh well, I'm sure there's a few fellas that might disagree with that. <laughs> possibly, possibly. I think, I think it's only now I've realised, not, not now, over the last couple of years, you realised actually how good he was. Yeah, I think, um, yeah, I think people at the time could see that he was, a, he was a great player. But I think what he did well, and you'll probably agree with this as a coach, is that he did the simple things very, very well. Yeah. So, you know, rather than being too flary or flashy, I know he had a little bit in the locker with sort of, you know, the whips crossed. It was that, it was that simple, basic stuff that I suppose Ferguson instilled in that whole group really but yeah I think like you say kids looking back now can probably take a a, a good sort of chunk of lessons from Bex definitely um, number four uh, so number four um, I actually went along with um, Ant Middleton, um, Middleton. someone yeah. yeah again someone if I'm honest I didn't really used to like until a few years ago, but I listened to a few podcasts that he did and I thought he was a very, very articulate speaker. I thought he he came across very well. He'd been through some real experiences, but I also then realised, again, he absolutely worked his sort of nuts off to get to where he was. So I know we all saw him as, as the guy who shouts on SAS on it TV. but off focus on that, isn't he? Yeah, when you yeah, exactly. But when you delve into his background, he's been through some real sort of horrific experiences uh in life. So again again, following that theme of someone I would love to spend some time with and, and, and have a really good sort of chew of the fat with, really. Yeah. Um I don't know much about about his background, only bits and bobs, but I think Yeah, I think that's a good mix there so far with Yeah. If recommend to yourself and anyone out there really if um if you haven't listened to his podcasts they're they're a fantastic way to spend an hour you know you i think you come off of there 
you know, quite impressed after that, really. Um, number five, then. So this would be your last player because you are the last one. Yeah, no, that's fine. So um, I kept it within the theme of football again. So this, again, it's, it's something that really divides opinions. But I was really torn between picking um, Messi or uh, CR7, the old Cristiano Ronaldo. So, oh. again, I think both goats of our era. I think most people would agree. Um, both players that, again, I personally can't pick between, um, as in who I think is best. But um, I ended up opting opting for uh, Messi because I think uh, for one player to stay at you know a club for your whole career through good times and bad times, and consistently almost in a Maradona sense carry a team for years upon years, um, he's been an absolute pleasure to watch. But again, someone I would absolutely love to ask a few questions to and. I think, again, the common theme throughout each one of those people I've picked is I think they have maybe some values that, like I said, resonate quite highly with me in the sense of they've all worked really hard, but they've all been very high-achieving people in life. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, that, that kind of rounded off where I was going with those. Yeah, very good theme. Um, obviously, we saved the best to the last Gary Faber. There's number <laughs> six. Yeah. What, what are you going to add to the... Add to the fire. Oh, look, you know, let's 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 be honest. If 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 we were playing a game with those guys, they're they're not going to want me for anything more than an ankle strapping or a hamstring rub, are they? So yeah, making the know, That's it. I'll, I'll bring them a cup of tea. I'll strap their ankle, and uh, look, you know, if they want a, a bit of a sideways ten yard pass that might not always be, you know, accurate. I'm your man. There you go. That's it. I think that's the. Uh... Best you can hope for there, if um, any of those guys are listening. Yeah, very much so. So, um, so you've got Peter Schmeichel, Ramos, Bex, Edmundson, Messi and yourself. Who, who, who's who's a coach in? Uh, again, I um, I decided for this one, I went with Harry Redknapp just because, um, you know, Redknapp. yeah, Harry Redknapp, good old Harry, because I think he's a character and I think he... Uh, he would take the heat off of that team. So, he, you know, he's got some banter. He's He's been around the block. Um, you know, I was born in Dagenham myself, um, grew up around sort of that region and become a West Ham fan. And I always absolutely used to love, you know, as a young kid going to football with my dad. Harry Redknapp was in charge. It felt quite magical what he did, you know, on limited budgets. You know, he, he got the best out of uh, some some players that maybe other people wouldn't touch, you know, your decanios and stuff like that at the time. And I just think he would, uh, he would be my obvious choice. I think he'd bring a bit of, bit of fun. He'd be laid back, but he, he'd get the job done as well. See, I, I don't like him. Do you not, no? I don't like him. Can't stand him. Oh, really? Okay. What? Well, what's the reasons? Well, because, oh, just, just from QPR, I just, I just think what he'd done was outrageous, mate. Left us in the lurch. Yeah, see, that, that is interesting there. When you think, you know, you know, the club I support, he probably did really good things for, whereas the club that you're back in, he, uh, he's, he's had a very different experience, isn't he? Well, yeah, I mean, look, gave us out that Wembley, but even then, with a the team we had, should should be finishing fourth in that league. Yeah, no, I agree, you know. And then to leave a day after um, transfer window... 
and blames his knee and then left us. So it didn't sort of, I think, did we sign someone? I think we did, but it was like some horrendous loan signing. I don't think we even played. Yeah, I guess, yeah. see, I, I'll be very open with you. I I didn't know too much about his history with QPR, but, you know, obviously the, the reason I've chosen, I suppose, is just for maybe sort of nostalgic reasons, like I say. But, yeah, interesting that, you know, can learn something new every day. Yeah, true. Um, so, yeah, I always ask this one. Who's falling out with each other there? In that group? Last person you're going to mess with. Is that Ann Middleton? Like, even Ramos ain't going to touch him. Oh, do you know what? I don't know. Who, who would your money be on between Ramos and Ant Middleton? I mean... Ant Middleton, he's killed people, hasn't he? He has, but is he trained to hold it back? Uh, it's a bit honest, mate. I don't want to put like, <laughs> run him out of sugar in his tea. No, I don't want to be nah. on the end of a... Nah, look. To be honest. Yeah, you know, I think Ant Middleton's the obvious choice that you're not going to mess with. But, you know, look, if it's a 50-50 challenge and, and they're going in two-footed, I'd give Ramos at least a little bit of leeway. I'd say that he, he might bring something to the table. Out, out, out of the group, he's probably the one that's going to step up to Ant Middleton, right? Yeah. Um, yeah, yeah. I reckon for the 50-50 challenge, I'm not sure afterwards, though. <laughs> no, it's an interesting one. It's, it's, it's a good... Uh, Good, good, good thing to reflect on there. I'd say you're not stepping up to him. No way, no way. I'm a, I'm a lover, not a fighter. Yeah, you just be with Perreira with the rest in post. That's it. I'd, I'd be sitting there with my gloves on, hoping that there's no injuries to deal with. Yeah, true. Um, and again, I'm gonna put you on the spot. Um, favorite football shirt because obviously, as people are aware, I do collect football shirts. And I've, I'll put it on the spot because everyone <laughs> guesses it would like you can think about this tomorrow and you're. Favourite football shirt will change. On the spot right now, favourite football shirt, and um, I might get some stick from friends for this, but um, I think it might have been around 1996, seven, if I'm correct. I might be wrong. Button up, uh, navy blue with a very mild white stripe across it. Um, I well, think the spot with the yellow. Yeah. No, 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 it was navy blue. Um, I, I'll have to look up what year it's from, but it was navy blue, button up top, um, with a very fine white stripe going through it. And I think their um their sponsors was Sharp, I think. But I remember but the, my... uh, like the fin hoops. Is that the one you're thinking about? Yeah, possibly. But I, I remember my dad bought me one, and uh, at the time I didn't appreciate it for what it was. But I really, I really liked that top, and it was uh, I liked the color, the fit, the style, and the material it was made from. Have you still got uh, it? Yeah, I'll have to um, I'll have to find it and send you a picture of it. But it was a very nice kit, and I think that's probably one that's sort of stayed with me actually. Nice. Right, um, thank you very much, Gary. Um, would like I said, we'd definitely get you on for another one because I think there's still a lot more to talk about there. Yeah, no, more more than happy to. It's been an absolute pleasure, and uh, thanks for having me.